First reading is uh, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. And this is on page 736 in the Bibles in the pews. So Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 6. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. From Acts chapter 13, and it's verses 13 through to 52, and can be found on page 1107 of the Pew Bibles. That's Acts chapter 13, verses 13 to 52. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites, And you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham... And you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. 
Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. And Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Caroline, for that marathon reading. Well done. Let's keep it open in Acts 13, and uh, I'll pray with that uh, sermon before us. We pray for that, uh, or a similar outcome, Lord, that we would be disciples willing to learn from you and that we'd be filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit as a result of your word being at work in us tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you know the final 
sentence of Marx's first communist manifesto. He concluded it, you have a world to win. And obviously, you hear that, you know he was fired by an ideal which he wanted to crisscross the globe. He wanted everybody to hear his message. So he laid down that challenge, a world to win. Well, they are words which could equally have been spoken by the Apostle Paul. Um, At the moment, in our evening services, we are on the trail of the Apostle Paul, that remarkable first-century Jewish Christian, as he engages in one of the earliest episodes of Christian missionary activity. And we could trace the journey on maps. Actually, I looked. Um, Keep something of your anatomy in Acts 13. And then flip open to the back cover, because you've got maps there. Um, I want you to come back to Acts 13, but you'll see. Last week, um, just starting the series off again, we were halfway down the page on the right-hand side in block capitals, bold print, Antioch. And we followed Paul's progress from Antioch to Cyprus, which is a sort of dotted, dashed line down to Salamis there. Uh, This week's section, he crosses the sea again from Cyprus, or from Paphos in Cyprus, to modern-day Turkey, up to where you see Lycia in there. Uh, I think that's right. Yep. And then he heads 100 miles inland to Pisidian Antioch, and Luke helpfully highlights that it was not the Antioch from which they had started out initially, a different Antioch, uh, pretty much in the middle of what we would call Turkey there, just next to the left-hand G of Galatia. That's the map, just to give you a a rough thing. You can come back to Acts 13 now. Now, from his preaching um, in the section we just heard, that lengthy sermon, it's, it's clear, and it becomes clear why, Paul was a world Christian. And there are lots of vital lessons to learn. They face us with the same challenge I started with. We have a world to win. Paul's teaching, you could tell from that reading, spans the two Sabbath days in which he was there in Pisidian Antioch. And I want to read from verse 14b um, to introduce his teaching. Verse 14, so you're back over one of the pages. Sorry, it's tricky to straddle a page, especially if I get you looking at the maps and things. But 14b, on the Sabbath day, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a message of exhortation for the people, please speak. So what was the word of exhortation that Paul chose to speak? Now, We heard it, surprisingly to our ears, it it consisted mainly of a history lesson, but it's a history lesson with a difference. Many today subscribe to the view that there is no pattern to history at all. It's a cynical view which has been called before the Cleopatra's nose view of history. And I can see one or two people are puzzled by that. I'd better explain. Um, I'll ask a question to try and get to the, the, the nub of what that means. What was it that ultimately led to Mark Antony's downfall in Roman history? That downfall was an event that was to have big repercussions for the entire Roman world. 
And according to this theory, the Cleopatra's nose theory, it wasn't the Battle of Actium in 42 BC which undid him. It was Cleopatra's nose. Antony was infatuated by her beauty, and in particular, her nose. That was his downfall. So the argument goes like this. There's no pattern to history at all, it says, because if Cleopatra's nose had been just a tiny bit longer, or if it had a bump or a boil on it or something, everything would have been different. The rise and fall of nations depends on random things like that, and history is governed by chance. Now, if you think that sounds a bit like an obscure academic matter, it really isn't, because behind it lie some of the most important questions we can ever ask. Where is humanity heading? prayed about the uh, situation in our world today, earlier in the service. Where's humanity heading? Where does my life, personally, fit in? And Paul's history lesson in this tiny little Turkish synagogue back in the late 40s AD claims to address those questions head on. For him, the central theme of history is not its randomness, but if I can coin a word, its kingdomness, the kingdom of God. A God who rules over all of mankind's affair is his overarching worldview. So I've got three points, and here's the first. The preparation of God's kingdom. Chapter one of his history of the world we can call the preparation bit. And that's where he begins, Paul, in verse 16, if you can follow it there. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. This is real shorthand going on. It's one sentence summary there of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in which after mankind's rebellion against God's rule, God ended up choosing one man, Abraham, and made him first, you'll know, into a family, then a tribe, even a people within just a few generations. So that's the first book of the Bible, his summary. Paul continues the middle of verse 17. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. That's one sentence to summarize the second book of the Bible, in which God showed he was his people's ruler by rescuing the Israelites from the iron grip of Pharaoh. Now, the storyline in Paul's sermon note just whistles on at breakneck speed, much as it started, because this is really just the preparation of God's kingdom. So the following verses, heading down to the bottom of that page, uh, 1107, cover the next four books of the Bible up to the end of Joshua. Verse 18, for about 40 years he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance All this took about 450 years, which sounds like a long time to us, but actually to the God of eternity. It's just a pinprick in his preparation for his kingdom. You've got the paragraphing in our Bibles that helpfully highlights a turning point in the middle of verse 20. Uh, Once his people are settled in the land, God places judges and then kings over his people. So he delegates his kingdom to human leaders. That's what Paul is reminding him them at this point. After this, God gave them judges, 
until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I've found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do, which takes us, if you know the flow of the Old Testament, to the high watermark of the Old Testament. Under David, God's people are living in God's place under his rule. We know he wasn't perfect, so the story doesn't end there, but the preparation of God's kingdom is well underway. Well, I wonder if you'd written a history of the world, whether it would have any resemblance to Paul's first chapter. Let me just mention before we move on a few striking features. For a start, it is a world history. So his overview includes other nations, notably Egypt and the seven Canaanite nations that Israel drove out. That makes it clear that Israel's God is not just a tribal deity, he is the Lord of the nations. Uh, Notice, too, the way you get repeated hints through those verses of Israel's rebellion. I think most clearly when Paul talks of God enduring Israel's sin in the wilderness. They might be his chosen people, but their track record of shaking their fist in God's face was a matter of public record. And that, of course, anticipates the way this very chapter of Acts 13 is going to end with the Jews shaking their fist in the face of God's spreading kingdom once again. Maybe the the most striking thing about Paul's overview is his God-centered view of history and the way every event in that little section we've looked at already is recorded as God's doing. He did it. God chose our father. He made the people prosper. He led them out. He endured their conduct. He overthrew seven nations. He gave them the land. He gave them judges. He gave them a king. That is how the Bible repeatedly views history. It's an account of God's activity in the world. Now, we don't think like that at all. We might accept that it's a nice idea that God is involved in the world, but we're tempted to think of it because of the pressures on us as just a theory and we wouldn't be surprised if people said to us, well, never mind your theories, just give us the facts. We think that's the sort of realm we're in. That's the way our papers are written, and it's actually the way we write our history too. We strip away all the interpretation. But we fail to see, when we do that, that we've built in an interpretation of history as we do so, namely that there isn't any interpretation. We think of it as just random unconnected events. Well, this here is Paul's answer to the Cleopatra's nose view of history. God is in control of history. Please, please keep believing it as you read the papers or look at the websites. God is in control of history. He's in charge of the nations. He's in charge even of human sin. So his guiding hand is at work in the preparation of the kingdom. I don't know, maybe that's the one thing that somebody here needs to hold on to tonight, that God is in control of the world and that he's guiding your life as well. That's quite clear 
in chapter one of Paul's history of time. Chapter two of Paul's history, I'm going to call the proof of God's kingdom. Let's pick up his sermon at verse 23. From this man, David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. We're not going to read all the verses that follow, but strikingly, once we get to David in the Old Testament account, we really just pass over a millennium almost without comment until there's two women who give birth to two babies, John the Baptist, who tells Israel that the long wait is over, and then a second baby was born, and with the arrival of Jesus Christ, God's kingdom is present in person. So we're moving from the preparation of God's kingdom to the proof of it once Jesus comes. That's my second heading, therefore. So how do the people of God respond when this happens? Well, they're true to their previous form, according to verses 27 to 29. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers didn't recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfill the words of the prophet that are read every Sabbath. They found no proper ground for a death sentence, but they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they'd carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. And you see there that Paul is emphasizing that the people of Jerusalem should have known better than to reject Jesus. They knew he was innocent, and they knew all the predictions about him in their scriptures. The irony is that the more violently they tried to get rid of Jesus, the more they were actually doing to prove that Jesus was God's appointed king, the Christ. Because at every point, you see, they were carrying out what was already written about him in the Old Testament, which is therefore proof of God's kingdom. Every time we take communion and share bread and wine, we're remembering a day which was more wicked than any other day in the history of the world when Jesus was crucified. Think of the hypocrisy of the high priests, um, the cowardice of Pilate, the fear of the disciples, the denial of Peter. All sorts of aspects of our rebellion are shown there and our wickedness. And yet when humanity is at its worst in rebelling against God, he uses that evil to achieve the greatest good that the world has ever seen. Um, There's a hint of that in a word that Paul uses to describe the cross in verse 29. Just have a look at it there. Literally, the word he uses is the word tree. And they'd carried carried out about him all that was written about him. They took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Sorry, it's 20... Have I got the right word? Yes, from the tree in verse 29 towards the end there. It says cross, but uh, that's because they're trying to make it clearer. But it's a throwback to an obscure prophecy from earlier in the Bible that anyone who hung on a tree died under the curse of God from Deuteronomy. And I like the way that's just sort of in there in the mix in the sermon. It was predicted so long before back in Deuteronomy, is it 23 or 22? Because the cross was to be the centerpiece of human history. That was the moment when the innocent one, Jesus, bore the curse that you and I deserve for our rebellion against God. 
to lift the curse from us. And that it was predicted is proof of God's kingdom. Obviously, the resurrection puts it beyond doubt. Paul turns to that in verse 30. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. I'm going to scoot over verses 32 to 37, where Paul shows how the resurrection as well was predicted by three Old Testament prophecies. But when God raised Jesus, it demonstrated the proof of God's kingdom unmistakably. I suppose until that point it might have seemed that man's sin had had the last word. Jesus is rejected. But no, God reverses that verdict by raising him. Reminds me of a story I know I've told before from the day of the Battle of Waterloo. One of the main lookout posts to spot the signal ships in the English Channel was... um, the roof of Winchester Cathedral. But on the day of that battle, a thick fog made the signal almost impossible to read. And the message could just about be made out. Wellington defeated, they read. That depressing message got passed on from lookout post to lookout post around the country until the fog lifted and revealed an extra word which changed everything. Wellington defeated Napoleon it said. Now, you might think looking at the cross, is it a question of Jesus defeated? If you didn't know all those predictions of the Old Testament, it might look that way on Good Friday. But not on Easter Sunday. Jesus defeated sin and death. Actually, the Old Testament had predicted that as well. It's all proof of God's kingdom. Which leads us briefly to consider the last chapter of this history of the world, the proclamation of God's kingdom. Let me read on from verse 38. This is where he's heading. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you weren't able to obtain under the law of Moses. So you get the flow of the argument thus far. The Old Testament gives us the preparation of God's kingdom. The ministry of Jesus, his death and resurrection, gives us the proof of God's kingdom. God's great king, his Christ, has come. All that remains is the proclamation of God's king, which is precisely what Paul was doing. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now you think this was good news. He says it's good news. But there's a chilling note of warning in the end of the chapter. Verse 40, take care. Paul says that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. I'm going to do something in your days you wouldn't ever believe, even if someone told you. Just as the first two chapters of that overview of history mention the rebellion of God's Old Testament people, so that theme continues in the third chapter. When God's kingdom is proclaimed to the nations... Jewish people that are there are jealous at free forgiveness being offered to the Gentiles, and they oppose that message at every turn. So I'm not going to read the last section of the chapter from verse 42 onwards, but that's what we see. The Gentiles accept the proclamation of the kingdom, 
but the Jews fulfill yet another Old Testament prediction by rejecting it. Or rather, actually, it's almost the other way around because a pattern starts emerging. Paul and his team, from this point on, reach any new town. They enter the synagogue first. They preach to the Jews first. And before long, they are flung out of the synagogue window. So they take the message to the Gentiles. Because in this chapter of world history that we're in now, chapter 3, God is absolutely committed to one thing, the proclamation of the kingdom, to everyone who will accept it. And that raises two questions for us as we close. Here are the questions that sort of take home application. First, are we listening? Are we listening? Think about it. If God is committed to getting the message of his kingdom proclaimed, then we need to be those who listen to it and receive that message. So have you taken the message to heart for yourself? Are you listening? Then, secondly, are you speaking? Once we've received the message, it then becomes important that we join up with the workforce of those who are proclaiming that message to others. And how else will the message reach the world? I love that story we heard from Derek about being on the evangelism team before he got converted. Both are important, aren't they? He needed to receive the message himself. He's keen to pass it on. Are we listening? Are we speaking? When Billy Graham first saw, back in 1969, the pictures of Earth taken from space, I understand he just said this. When I saw those photos of the planet, I just wanted to reach out and grab the world for God. It's a lovely sentiment, but it's right, isn't it? We've got a world to win. And the way for us to do it is one by one, ourselves and others, one by one. And I'd love to call you and uh, call myself to be committed to that great task again on the basis of Paul's message in Antioch. Let's pray together. We pray, Heavenly Father, for our listening to the message of the kingdom, that we would bow the knee to Christ. And it's our longing that other people would also bow the knee to him. Therefore,